Thanks for joining us for the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. We're excited to have Philip B. Stark as the guest for today's episode. Philip B. Stark is a professor of statistics and associate dean of mathematical and physical sciences at the University of California in Berkeley. He studies topics ranging from astrophysics to earthquake prediction to gender bias to election integrity to wild food and urban ecosystems. He has published more than 190 articles and books and has lectured in 30 countries. Stark received the Presidential Young Investigator Award, the John Gideon Award for Election Integrity, the Chancellor's Award for Research in the Public Interest, the Lima Rosenthal Award for Transparency and Social Science, a Velux Willem Foundation Professorship and a Miller Professorship. Philip, I would like to welcome you to the Minor Tweak Major Impact Podcast. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Philip, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you're currently working on? I'm a professor of statistics at the University of California, Berkeley. My undergraduate degree is actually in philosophy, and my PhD is in geophysics. I ended up in a statistics department quite accidentally. I work on problems in physical science, uh, ranging from solar physics and astrophysics and cosmology to high-energy particle physics. I do a little bit of work in life sciences, in ecology, food systems. I work on other more social questions like gender bias and teaching evaluations and election integrity. I probably put more time into work on election integrity and methods for auditing election outcomes for the last 10 years or so than I've, than I've put into anything else. In the scientific world, a lot of times we hear that an experiment should be reproducible. Can you please tell us a little bit what that means? The problem is that that doesn't have an easy answer. One of the reasons I, I wrote the paper that I think prompted you to reach out to me was exactly that that word doesn't mean the same thing to different uh, sciences. In some cases, you know, reproducibility is you know, the test of a scientific result. If you try the same experiment, do you get essentially the same outcome? In some cases, what people mean by reproducibility is not, you know, if you go back to the lab and try again, do you get the same thing? But merely if you reprocess the data, do you get the same tables and figures starting from the same data? That overloading of the terms reproducible, replicable, repeatable, generalizable, there are, there are a lot of words that are used in ways that are similar but, but that contradict each other in different fields, ranging from chemistry to biology to genotype studies of rodents. In computational science, it generally means, can you repeat the calculations in other kinds of science, reproducibility, replicability, and words like that sometimes have to do with whether starting from a clean slate, you would end up getting the same result, or starting from different reagents, but following the same procedure, you'd get the same stuff, or using the same reagents, but in a different lab, would you get the same result, et cetera. So it's all rather internally conflicted. The way that people use these terms is not uniform. And so you mentioned the article you wrote, which has the title, Before Reproducibility Must Come Preproducibility. Can you please tell us a little bit about what you mean by that and where really your motivation came from to write this article? 
the terms that I was talking about before, reproducible, replicable, repeatable, generalizable, and so on, all have to do with whether you get the same outcome if you do you know, essentially the same thing. And a lot of the complaints about so-called crisis of reproducibility in science and whatnot really have to do with, you know, if you do the same thing, do you end up getting the same answer? You know, the same thing, we can nuance that in various ways. But there isn't really a word for you didn't give me enough information to even try to repeat what you did, much less, you know, I tried it and I didn't get the same outcome. So the idea of pre-producibility is to talk about or is to address whether a computation or experiment or you know other result has been described in adequate detail for someone else to re-undertake it. It's not about whether they get the same answer if they do re-undertake it. So in order to be able to tell whether you get the same thing if you re-undertake it, you need enough of a description to be able to attempt to re-undertake it. And pre-producibility is an attempt to label that so that we can separate those two notions from each other. So why do you think it is important that a published paper includes detailed descriptions of the used methods? And also, how much detail do you think is enough or maybe not enough? Well, if you don't describe what you've done in adequate detail for someone else to re-undertake it, then you basically have not presented evidence that you're correct. You've simply made a claim. In the words of Donahoe and Buckheit, they said that a modern computational paper is not the scholarship itself, it's an advertisement for the scholarship, and the scholarship is embodied in the code and parameter settings and other things that people did to actually you know, generate the tables and figures. And similarly, if you are uh, publishing something about bench lab science or, or, or whatever, and you have not described in detail what you did adequately enough for someone else to re-undertake it, then you're basically saying, trust me, I did something or other and something or other happened. You're not actually giving someone enough information to be able to check your claim. How much information should someone provide? They should provide a description of everything that cannot be omitted. It, things which, if, if you change them, would alter the result of the experiment or the outcome. So what those things are depends on the discipline you're working in. And to some extent, those things that you can ignore, those things that you can abstract away from the problem, define the scientific, scientific discipline that you are working in. If it doesn't matter kind of where in the universe you're doing it, you're doing physics, it's supposed to apply to uh, all living organisms. You're doing some kind of molecular and cell biology. If it's only supposed to apply to mice, you're doing murine biology. And the, those aspects of the experimental setup of the reagents or the animals or the apparatus or the timing of this or that that can be ignored that aren't going to change the outcome, those can be omitted. But if omitting, if not controlling those things, if not specifying those things is going to result in a different outcome, then you haven't uh, yet described things adequately. Sometimes when we're publishing papers, there's really not unlimited of space, right? Sometimes there's just not enough space to add a very detailed description of your method. Do you have any suggestions or tips for scientists out there who are currently working on a paper and they want to include all their methods and all their data, but there's just not enough space? Is there any good ways to make sure that all your methods and data are available and easily accessible for everybody? That's definitely an issue the way we currently do scientific publication. I think that it's actually a particular problem with some of the more prestigious journals that want 
a shorter and shorter advertisement from, for the work rather than wanting to see the work itself. So I think there's two approaches to this. One, nothing prevents you from putting your methods and your data up on the web in some kind of an archive. Code can go into some kind of a public Git repository, GitHub, GitLab, something like that, or an institutional repository. There are a number of organizations that will provide a digital object identifier, a DOI for data sets and other things so you can make the data available. There are a number of web services available to try to zip up your paper together with its supporting code and data into a single object that other people can then reference. But more importantly, I think we should be pushing back on the entire scientific publication ecosystem and insisting that we only publish in places that will allow us to put the entire piece of scholarship there, including the evidence that we're correct, not merely the claim. I think that referees and editors can really move things forward a lot by simply refusing to bless any manuscript that doesn't include in it enough information to check whether the claims are correct. So I think that uh, looking for alternative publishing venues that acknowledge that there's more information needed in order to understand claims about results or be able to produce the results. This may be more open publications, publications that allow larger electronic supplements, publications that allow code, and then simultaneously really trying to turn things around so that what we give people credit for in academia, what counts towards their promotions, what counts towards awards, what counts towards all of these things is not just the claim, but also the evidence behind the claim. So if someone were to come up for tenure and the response of the reviewing committee were to, to be to say how nice that you advertised your work in science and nature and whatever, but we'd actually like to see the work. We'd actually like to see the influence that the work has had, not merely an advertisement for the work. That could really move things in the direction of promoting reproducible and pre-producible research. And did you ever experience a minor tweak major impact moment yourself? Yes, uh, in a number of different ways, I suppose. One of the Easiest things to start to do that can really change your work habits permanently and result in a smoother workflow and the ability to pick up work that you've put down for a while is to work using repositories. There's a lot of techniques from the open source software development world that scientists can use to advantage. One of the easiest or first things to do is to use some kind of a revision control system, source control system for your software and your papers. I tend to use GitHub. Starting, you only need to learn four or five command line you know, commands in order to use Git effectively. And it really does, it really does give you a way to keep track of what you're doing, keep track of issues that you need to address branch things to see what would happen if I tried this or that, but still roll back history the previously working versions. It's a wonderful collaborative tool as well. Another thing that's made a big difference in my work is writing more software tests, unit tests for any new functionality that I build and trying to use continuous integration so that all of the tests of my software get run against uh, the software anytime I make a change whatsoever. Pair programming has also been really useful to me in my research. I typically sit down with my grad students, you know, shoulder to shoulder, a couple of sets of eyes on the screen, one set of fingers on the keyboard, discussing what we're doing and keeping track of it and catching each other's errors or trying to come up with better ideas. If those three things that uh, come from the software development world are incredibly valuable in science. And do you have any last insights 
that you would like to share with our listeners today? Probably the biggest single thing you can do if you're doing research that involves computation and you're not yet using kind of serious scientific software to do it, if you're relying on Excel or other spreadsheets as quickly as you can, move to some kind of a scripted language. If you're a senior scientist and learning a new tool isn't something you want to devote the time or energy to, at the very least, you can encourage your uh, your students and your postdocs to work in a way that's more reproducible. And the first and biggest thing you can do in that direction is to make sure that your analyses are all scripted, that you're not relying on point-and-click tools for your analysis. Those are uh, intrinsically difficult to test for accuracy, to find errors in, and so on. So move to scripted analyses. And as always, our last question, do you have any favorite scientific tool? And if you do, why is that your favorite tool? My favorite scientific tool that I no longer use is a slide rule. And the reason for that, I think, is that understanding how a slide rule works teaches you a lot about mathematics in and of itself. And it's an incredible time saver. It doesn't need batteries. Some of them are very, very beautiful objects. They have a, a long history. They have this wonderful, almost medieval feel to them. My favorite scientific tool that I uh, use currently is probably Jupyter Notebooks, which provide a wonderful environment for uh, doing data analysis, code development, and, and so on, and, and a narrative data analysis, data storytelling. They're also a wonderful tool for teaching. Very cool. Philip, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your stories and insights on the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Thank you for having me on the show. This is your host, Anita, and we look forward to being with you for our next episode.